Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. This week we've got Professor David Lindsay, those who know him well, known as Prof. Uh, he was a, a lecturer at University of Western Australia in its heyday uh, and taught a lot of a lot of uh, ag professionals out there. So there'll be quite a few people listening that will have been taught by Prof, no doubt. Uh, I know him through his scientific writing courses. He, I think I did a couple of them. I uh, ended up with a nickname from that. Uh, that a few people call me cowboy because of that day, but other than that, um, he is he's one of the greats of science communication. The sort of I guess right to inform rather than right to impress is his his mantra. And uh, alongside that, he was he also was a, an ultra fine breeder. Not sure how far along those those sheep got, but we're going to find out in just a second when we interview Professor. David Lindsay, what else is happening? So, I think we've got a QA session coming up, so we'd love to have some questions. Yeah, got a QA session. So, either email us at info at or sophie at nextgenagri, or in the show notes to this podcast, there'll be a phone number that you can leave a voice message to. We try not for answer phone messages. The uh, quality of phone calls around rural Australia isn't great. So, if you can wait till you get home and send it to us on Wi Fi, that would be fantastic. Um, and yeah, can't wait to. Uh, get some questions in and I'm looking forward to this podcast. Um, professors are usually my favourite topics and guests, so yeah, it'll be a good one this week. Yeah, I'm sure Dave's not going to disappoint, so we'll get him on now. Welcome Professor David Lindsay to the show. Thanks, Ferg. Uh, nice to be there. Excellent. Yeah, I, we've got a few things to cover today. I want to talk about obviously a teaching time there at University of Western Australia and then uh, a bit of part-time sheep breeding, but also your scientific writing courses, which have been had a big influence on on my attempts to write papers and lots of other people like me. So, I guess if we start back with with UWA, and I don't know, I would probably classify the days that you're at UWA as the heydays. There's obviously a lot of a lot of UWA graduates are out doing great things in our industry at the moment. What, what did you actually lecture back at back at UWA? Well, I used to lecture in uh, reproduction in in sheep. Was uh, I got I got the job because I I started at the University of uh, Sydney, and uh, uh, it was in the in the mid sixties that uh, uh, there was huge expansion going on in Western Australia, clearing 
million acres a year and all sorts of things like that. And, and uh, somebody uh, from the Department of Agriculture worked out that they were clearing the, the land faster than the sheep could reproduce to, to stock it. And uh, so for some reason <laughs> or other, they decided that the way to handle this was to appoint a lecturer in reproductive physiology of sheep at UWA, and I was lucky enough to get the job. Um, it was interesting that I got it in 19, I came here in 1967, uh, and in 1969, uh, the sheep were bringing uh, about the same price they're bringing now, absolutely nothing, uh, <laughs> because it was a glut of sheep in 1969. So the Department of Agriculture followed got it completely wrong. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'd done my job in two years and got, got the, um, got the sheep from being a deficit to a complete glut <laughs> uh, in those two years. So it allowed me then to get on and, and, and do research into things that, uh, I really enjoyed and, and, and liked doing, um, uh, freed from the idea that, that uh, somehow, had, somehow or other I had this goal of, of, uh, of increasing the reproductive rate. <laughs> um, so so that's, that's how I got going. And uh, uh, fortunately, I had a lot of good students and uh, um, I, I suppose one of the things was, was that I found as I went on uh, was publishing this sort of material, um, how um, how difficult it was uh, to to write, and I didn't like writing very much. Uh, unfortunately for me, um, I they they used to give a little course called scientific communication or something or other, and it was given by an economist of all people who who, uh, <laughs> who left in a hurry, and I happened to be. Uh, at that stage, the, the Dean of Agriculture at that point. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll get somebody else to do it, and I couldn't get them. So I um, said, well, it must be easy. I'll do it myself. And at that point, I started to realise the importance of, of writing that uh, as, a, as a scientist because, in fact, if you don't write, you don't do anything. You don't. Nobody knows you're there. I mean, you, you, your mother does and a few other people, but nobody else um, Knows that you exist, so you've got to, you've got to write. And uh, uh, there are very, very few courses around that uh, incorporate the communication of the science that people do into their into their uh, training as scientists. And uh, so, when I retired in in two thousand, I uh, I uh, continued. To, uh, to talk to people about writing. And uh, I've written a couple of books on it now. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's become an obsession of mine. So I've got to think of a new way of retiring. Yeah, and it definitely got a, a wind of its own, I guess. And I, I'm pretty sure I've done, pretty sure I've done at least two of those courses. And yeah, really, really powerful stuff. And obviously, I guess things like things that are written well you kind of don't know they're written well because it's just easy to read and that's the point and and I think I always remember many things that you said during those courses but one was right to inform not to impress and and that I think is very critical obviously there's plenty of people try to sound smart by by using big words and and things but you if your mother can't read it or if, or if someone straight off the off the street can't read it and work out what you're trying to tell them then you really haven't you haven't done your job yeah, it, it's it's funny. I I uh, I've uh, quite 
relatively recently become a great fan of Alan Elder, who you might have heard of from, he was the Hawkeye Pierce in MASH. Um, you remember yeah, the American? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he actually uh, ran a program for um, Scientific American on, on one of the American channels where he interviewed scientists and he worked out that scientists couldn't explain themselves. And so he became a, a great advocate of, of, uh, of scientific writing and set up a course at Stony Brook University in, in um, New York on scientific communication and he's, he'd written a book. Um, which he brought out in, in 2018 called, um, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Stupid Look on My Face? <laughs> That's the name of the book. And, and it really is quite a great read for anybody. But one of the, one of the great things he said, uh, was you don't tell people what you want to tell them. Tell them what they want to know. And, uh, the, the key to good writing is actually getting people to want to know what you're about to tell them. And, uh, uh, it's a way of, a way of thinking about writing that, that, uh, made an enormous difference. Uh, and in fact, what he says is not much different to what I say. He just says he does it so much better than I. <laughs> Uh, it's well. It's a great read if you want to read it. Yeah, no. Poor old Elder's now got Parkinson's disease, but he's still he's still talking about communication. Excellent. I guess yeah, whether it's written, verbal, or or uh, video audio, ever yeah, I guess all forms. The same thing applies if you if you haven't yeah, I guess if people haven't understood what you're trying to tell them, then you haven't communicated. I think there's a lot of in yes, right. in the science world, particularly yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people that yeah think having I guess having written that paper or having uh, done one one video or one audio or something, then then that's the communication job done. But really, if we know that everyone hears differently, like you can, we can tell ten people the same thing, and you get ten different uh, understandings of what you told them. So it is a yeah, there's a it's definitely an art form to get to have people understand what you're trying to tell them. Yes, you've got to be thinking of the reader all the time. But but clearly, clearly you're doing this this, uh, this podcast series that you're doing is shows that you actually understand that pretty well. <laughs> so, well I don't know whether we, yeah, we we hope to hope to be communicating out there, and definitely it's a, a changing world, and and we've found yeah. this medium to to work well for farmers because you can drive a tractor or bring a mob of sheep in and and listen at the same point. So that's that's I guess our our aim with with this style of communication. Back at UWA, what were some of those research projects? I guess that would have been the time when estrogenic clover was wreaking havoc and a few other things going on. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, uh, we're pretty. We're, I was pretty lucky with that too because uh, I worked a bit with Clive Francis, who was, a, who was probably the most uh, prominent uh, clover breeder, and uh, uh, you know we looked at estrogenic patches and so on. But uh, uh, we looked at. The, you know what what you might be able to do with the sheep to stop it, but um, eventually they found that uh, the best thing is to to work with the with the, with the with the clovers anyway the, in the, the legumes rather than the, the, the sheep, and so um, a whole series of of, of uh, highly estrogenic clovers were phased phased out, and um, and non estrogenic types were faded in. So that was that was better than the uh, than, uh, than trying to change the sheep and, and find the resistance to it. So we, it's, it's still a, a little problem, but because um, 
uh, we don't have the the uh, clover dominant pastures we used to have. Um, its its effect is, is much much less, and and the varieties around uh, um, uh, have diluted out the estrogenic varieties as well. So it's it's not the problem it used to be, but allowed us to find out a lot of other things, and, and uh, we did. There, there are things that we did that I'm, I'm finding even today people don't take it, um, uh, don't sort of quite understand the fundamentals. One of one of them is, if you know, if you'll indulge me a bit, one of them is about uh, rams. Uh, I was interested, and 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 sort of some of my PhD students were interested in the behaviour of rams and how they uh, rams and ewes and the whole mating setup, and. Uh, you know, I, I find that, that there are there are practical ways that that you can make farmers can make uh, or or save quite a lot of money uh, in in rams. The ram breeders don't think that's a good idea because <laughs> mostly it means that you can use if you prepare rams well, um, you can use fewer of them, and of course you don't have to buy them. And rams are fairly expensive part of your of your uh, uh, farming business, like a sheep farming business, um, but uh, it, it's it's the the ram is an incredible uh, uh, producer of, of uh, it's a dynamo in terms of, of, of its production of, of sperm, and since it only takes one sperm to fertilise an egg, uh, people think that that you know they're just being profligate producing all these sperm. I mean one. A gram of uh, testicular tissue will, will produce you uh, uh, something like uh, ten thousand sperm um, a minute. You know, that's it's sort of a <laughs> yeah, right. incredible thing. Yeah, um, well, wait a minute. They, they can produce twenty million sperm per day, or fourteen thousand sperm a minute. I just, I just a bit wrong, and so. If you can make sure that your rams have got big testes, uh, and that's not so hard either, it's a most extraordinary business that they do have big testes, as we know. Um, but uh, if you can increase the weight of the testes, each gram of sperm is producing, each gram produces about 14,000 sperm a minute. Yeah. Uh, it's really a, a, an extraordinary performance, really. So to do that, is that are you talking genetically increasing scrotal circumference or nutritionally making sure they're good to go? No, no nutritional will do the trick. This is the extraordinary thing. It, it, you know, we did uh, with Chris Oldham in particular. We did uh, a lot of lot of feeding of, of rams uh, in the last six uh, or seven weeks before joining, um, and we could increase the size of testes by about twenty grams. 20 grams a week. Yeah, right. Now, put that in perspective, the human testis is about 20 grams. And so you can increase the size of the thing by that. The big thing, though, is that, that the sperm hunt in packs. They, they, uh, you do need a lot of sperm. At least, you need at least 60,000, 60 million sperm uh, in order to, to uh, get reasonable production. But when you start to work out what one ram can do, uh, the concept of having one ram per hundred ewes, which most people are very wary of because they say that's too low, so they put in two rams or th- even three rams. 
100 years yeah. in order to make sure that they get enough sperm. Um, that's really not the problem. I think the problem is to get the rams that you do put in to be good enough to produce the the, the, the numbers. And when you do, there is absolutely no doubt that, that um, 1% rams is, is, is enough. Now, that alone can save um, most sheep farmers an enormous amount of money, except the stud people, of course, because they sell less rams. <laughs> and it means, it means expending a little bit of feed over, over a two-month period before mating, uh, but the cost of doing that compared to the cost of, of doubling your number of rams, for example, is, is very, very small. So this is, this is something that, that uh, we, we worked on quite a lot and uh, it really hasn't taken on all that much. Uh, you know, people, people uh, tend to say, well, we've got to be careful, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll put some extra rams in. Now, clearly, if you're using a single ram uh, with a 100 with years, that's a little dangerous just in case he's genetically um, infertile or, or for some other uh, reason, uh, uh, maybe a pathological reason, is infertile. But people never never actually check out the, the, uh, their, their RAM testing very much at all. Um, but you can grow them like mad. The interesting thing is that, that uh, what we found after a six-week mating period that the testes, uh, the size of the testes of, of most rams reduces to about half what it was when they started. Uh, so the, the testes is an incredibly mobile thing and, a, and an incredibly uh, productive um, uh, piece of piece of machinery that the, the, uh, that the sheep has got. Uh-huh. And in fact, another fact that people uh, don't realise is that that apart from some pygmy shrew or something or other, the the ratio of the size of the testis to the weight of the animal is the, in, in the ram is higher than every other species on earth. Uh, they have they they are designed to produce enormous amounts of sperm, and, and farmers should be taking advantage of that. Yeah, you've only got to follow a. A group of rams down the down the track, and well, follow a bull or a set of bulls or whatever, and obviously, it, yeah, very different ratio. And yeah, I think yeah, hundred percent right in the opportunity there. The what I guess we see and des- definitely try and change is is people playing hung- the Hunger Games in their ram paddock. People kind of chuck them in the ram paddock or the wi- the windmill paddock or the or the swamp paddock or whatever, and they get chucked there for sort of ten and a half months, and then they get dragged out and sent in with the ewes and and haven't had that that sort of pre pre planning and pre nutrition, so I think maybe that management sort of contributes to this this need for all this sort of yeah people putting out two percent because they're only putting out half a ram on both cases kind of things. But the um, if the protocol, like to summarise that protocol of feeding, what does that look like to get your rams to grow to grow testicular tissue? What is is that that was lupins or is that just any nutrition? Well- is it, yeah, in Western Australia, because lupins are available and so on, that's the sort of thing we use. It's a high-protein, high-energy uh, diet, and it's a wonderful, wonderful feed for lupins. Um, and we've never been quite sure whether it's the protein or the energy or whether it's, it's just the combination of the two that does it. But, but uh, the main thing is um, the, all, the, the ram, if you're going to mate for six weeks, 
the sperm that they're going to use in that six weeks is uh, has already been made. Um, uh, it's it's in the in the the cells have already been produced and they're now in the process of maturing. So any feed you give them during the mating, and they probably won't eat much of it anyway, and that's why they lose so much testicular weight. They they they're not interested in food for the during the mating period. Uh, but uh, the the uh, the amount of uh, uh, sperm they produce is is already been in in train at the moment they go in the gate. So the time to feed them is is for the uh, it takes fifty four days in fact between when the first cells divide to produce the uh, sperm in the uh, uh, Sertoli cells, it's, it's, uh, it's 54 days before it's ready to be ejaculated. And uh, um, so if you can feed them a lot of the last 54 days before mating, then that, that's the time you should be preparing your rams. After that, you can then with confidence put them in, providing you're putting more than one ram per, per uh, mating group uh, to, to cover the the odd uh, infertile ram, uh, then then you can get away with one percent. And people in New Zealand have been doing that for for, for fifty or sixty years. Some people in New Zealand anyway, um, and uh, and with obviously no problems whatsoever. But um, certainly in Australia, the idea is that just you put uh, two and a half three percent is the sort of thing that people will talk about, and. Uh, and they will probably need that number if they're using uh, rams that haven't been properly prepared. Yeah, definitely. And we see, yeah, half a percent, point three percent over here, and like people put a one ram out with a couple hundred ewes and, and no trouble. And you you also see, I think every farmer's got a got a, a memory of where a ram got in for overnight or a couple of days or whatever, and somehow yeah. somehow side two hundred lambs or whatever. Like there's there's uh, insane what can happen when when one jumps a fence. So. There's obviously plenty yeah. of capacity. Yeah, that's right. Hundred one, one for hundred is 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 quite conservative. Uh, <clears throat> you can you can you can get away with less than it, I'm sure. <clears throat> but of course, it's it's a little bit. You only get <clears throat> one chance per year to, to get to, to get it right. That's it. So yeah, people will be on the safe side, but being on the super safe side is a very expensive thing to do. <clears throat> The other thing is that most people think that what happens is the ram runs around chasing the ewes all over the place. Not 100% uh, like that. <laughs> the ewes actually chase the rams too. Uh, and, uh, you know, initial things done by Ian Inkster, I think it's Ian Inkster anyway in, in New Zealand, uh, showed that, that um, and we did it at will, um, if, you, if you chain the ram up in, on a, on a, you know, a, a on a three-meter chain in the middle of the or somewhere in the paddock, and put in extra ewes with him, uh, they still get mated just as well as if he were running around free. Um, they all chase the the, the the ram, and you often see under the tree or something uh, a ram with four or five ewes around. And it's ewes that've been chasing the uh, the ram, um, and that's something worth knowing as well. <laughs> Definitely, and I think. Um that's the only explanation I can give for a, for a ram. We talk a little bit about whose um, whose tag number is actually eighteen oh one four one. Who's notoriously doesn't get maidens pregnant. He only gets he only gets adult used in the mob pregnant when you mix them up. Uh, and I the only the only sort of conclusion we can draw from that is that it's the fact that 
those older older ewes are more likely to seek the ram, and therefore that's what's going on because they can't see any other reason. But it's but it's been replicated in a couple of different years, so it's definitely definitely a feature. A quick interruption here to remind you of Head Shepherd Premium and our consulting services at NextGen Agri International. If you love this podcast and want to hear more of them, visit thehub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for Head Shepherd Premium and get an extra podcast each week. If you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximise the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextgenagri.com and we'll get in touch and see see where that takes us. I think absolutely correct, uh, Mark. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the maiden news you've got to think of as being, you know, slightly different. And, well, you know, I think the old, old idea that you put, uh, the you make sure you put older rams in with the, the your maiden ewes and, the, and the, your maiden rams in with the older ewes is, is probably a, a, a pretty sound one. Yeah. Yeah. About it. Well, it's, it's, I don't know, this is a bit of an aside, but it's an interesting one. One of the experiments we did, we, we reckon we had a fantastic way of finding out just what happens, uh, how many rams mate with, with ewes in, in commercial conditions where you're talking about flocks of, uh, five, six, seven hundred sheep, eight hundred sheep, um, ewes, and, and you put in several rams, but you can't, you, we wanted to trace which ram um, worked the most and, and, and how many worked and how many ewes got served by each ram and so on. And we had this fantastic idea. We used rattles, but uh, uh, you can use it with different colours and then you can see the different colours, but that only that can only handle, only had four colours and rattles and and, uh, uh, and sometimes they got a bit mixed up. They were red and the, not the red and the blue, but the, the yellow and the, and the, and the blue uh, Turned out to produce green metal and all and stuff. But what we found was this fantastic idea. If we used sort of fairly rare metals like titanium, zirconium, things like that, and put them in the rattles and then cut the wool off, uh, we could put in, in fact, we did put in 10 different um, uh, of these rare metals into the, into the rattle mixture. We made up the rattles and, and ourselves. And, um, and then put them out with the ram. So then we cut the wool off and tested it in a in a in an atomic absorption spectrophotometer, which was a new instrument at the time. Uh, and we could find out when you got a peak of any of these rare metals in the wool sample after you've ashed it. And uh, that was fantastic. But at one place uh, where we were using ten uh, different uh, metals, um, we found that. Uh, in a flock of 700 years, that uh, two of, two rams actually mated every ewe. And we said, this has just got to be a bit, bit, bit fun. <laughs> and finally, Terry Knight, who, who you would know pretty well from uh, New Zealand, he went to New Zealand and did quite a lot of good work there. But uh, Terry got the, he said, well, let's just clip some wool off the, off the body of the animal where there's no sign of any rattle at all and see what's on there. And there was zirconium and titanium in the wool itself. And, uh, it turned out that the bloke, the bloke's place had, had zirconium and titanium in it. So he pegged the place for, because he thought he might have a, have a mine on his hands. And apparently it was in the clay and the, apparently the extraction system, um, is so bad that you can't use it. They, they, they 
the mines that they use, the Carnium and Titanium mines, mainly in sand. So we couldn't use it at that time. <laughs> we thought we had a fantastic <laughs> But it did show that, that many rams did were, were actually mating over 300 years in, in uh, uh, and there was a big variation between the number of rams, uh, the, the, sorry, the number of ewes that each ram served. But, but uh, some of them did, did that many, but we had to reduce our numbers down to eight yeah. as a maximum that we could use because of this other <laughs> Other stuff. Um, and it actually, uh, and it's never been tried, I don't think, but that's a fantastic way of, of uh, mineral exploration, I reckon. <laughs> that's right, run the sheep in there. And, yeah, exactly. Go to the small stores and get a sample from everywhere, and when you find a place that's got a particular particular uh, element in it from the dust that's in the wool, then uh, you go and peg the place. Yeah, yeah that'd be good. <laughs> I haven't had the energy to do it, so anyway. <laughs> There's still time. Anybody wants to be rich, here's a... Here's a, here's a, here's a is a trick. Yeah, you heard it here first. Um, back to the, that 54 days, that means that we shouldn't be doing anything in that in certain terms of management, anything that causes any any grief to the ram in that 54 days before going out is is a no-no. Does that include shearing? Yeah. Shearing shouldn't hurt. The shearing not a, not a big yeah. deal, I don't. And uh, the, the, the only thing is uh, putting them in a shed and, and, and feeding them up uh, so that they're, they're – uh, they're in a shed, uh, completely artificial conditions and so on. I think that's a bit of a problem. And some people that buy flash-looking rams that have been, been spent all their life in a shed, put them out with the ewes off and have a bit of trouble because they get out there and they, they, uh, they're not used to the outside conditions. They're not, they don't, uh, they heat up too quickly. The, the testis has got to stay about four or five degrees Celsius cooler than the blood. Uh, the, the, the rest of the body um, is designed and put outside and got sweat glands and all sorts of things to keep itself cool. But if they if they aren't used to that and don't have the systems in place to, to do it, then you can have rams where their semen is, in fact, infertile because it's too hot and it kills it. Right, I know. So at some stage in, in your career, you decide you'd have a crack at Breeding a few rams and were were breeding ultrafines. How did what did you get up to and how did that go? Oh yeah, it was the most enjoyable thing. About nineteen ninety, I think we 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 got a few. Uh, well, they were, they were called superfines at that time. They were about seventeen microns. And we got a few of those because they tend to, to resist uh, the moisture. Where we were on the coast in uh, in uh, Western Australia, and the sheep we had before used to get a lot of a lot of uh, fleece rot and stuff. So we. We got these for that reason, and then we decided that we'd try and see what we could do about reducing the fineness of the wool without without reducing the fleece weight. And um, uh, we didn't stick to any one bloodline. And I remember the first the first semen I got to to, uh, to to try this out. The the offspring of the semen was one micron finer and one kilogram heavier. Than the sheep I had, uh, you know, uh, on average. Yeah. So that was enormous. It paid for the semen without any trouble at all in one year. Uh, and we kept doing that until um, uh, getting the best, uh, the best uh, semen on figures uh, and EBBs and so on that we could we could get. Until our own sheep were pretty well as good as any semen we got in, but we used to keep doing it for 
for comparative purposes. But we got down to, uh, we sold a bale of wool at 13.4 microns, uh, and we found that we could, we had increased the fleece weight on those animals by, over the years, by probably uh, two and a half kilos and decreased the micron from 17 down to about 15. We'd cull anything over 15 uh, in the end. And I got too old and, and sold it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Eh? You were saying before the show that your wife used to cast the wool, but um, obviously, uh, yeah, better things to be doing these days than, than standing in a wool well, shop. Yeah, as I said to you earlier, that, that she she didn't mind standing around the table for eight hours passing the wool, but, but cooking for the shearer at the same time, she reckoned it was too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, excellent. That was that was one of the influences. Yeah, yeah. So if we, yeah, I guess we'll chat a bit more about the scientific writing course and and yeah, how, where's how far, how wide has that taken you over over the years, over the last twenty years since or twenty three years, I suppose. Well, it became a, a, a different career, and, and so I, I've lectured in every state in Australia and about eighteen different universities, one way or another, um, to to people from. And the interesting thing is I, I do very little lecturing to people in agriculture anymore. It's, it's uh, medical science. and, and uh, In fact, I was made a, uh, a, an honorary professor at the University of Southern Queensland because of the help I gave them for writing in uh, astrophysics. Right? So, you know, <laughs> a rocket scientist. The interesting thing is it doesn't matter what the, what the subject is. Uh, the principles are absolutely the same. And, and, you know, Einstein said, if you can't explain astrophysics to uh, a barmaid, then you probably don't know enough about astrophysics. And I think that was a pretty good sort of <laughs> summary of that, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I've, I've learned an enormous amount of thing about it, mostly mostly useless stuff for me, but, uh, <laughs> but terribly interesting stuff in all sorts of fields. And that's, that's quite, uh, it's been a fascinating sort of journey that I've been on. Yeah, and I guess if we just briefly, because we can't give it anywhere near the justice it requires, but what are the it's like if you could give your top top three mistakes people write uh, make when they're writing, what would what would they be? Well mostly the the, the, the the most important thing is to always consider your reader. Uh because uh that's the only reason anybody puts anything on paper is for somebody to read it, even if it's if it's they themselves that have to read it later on. Uh, so you've got to think of the reader every time. So if you say, if I were reading what I've just written here, would I, would I understand this crap in front of me? <laughs> and if you, if you think it's crap in front of you, then you've got to rewrite the thing. There's no, no question about that. Um, and, and the, the, the idea that if you say something that, that sounds terribly important, uh, using words that you're not used to, um, you, Chances of making a, 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 an error uh, like the one that I sometimes illustrate is, is the one that says uh, table six shows the number of teachers broken down by six and eight. <laughs> and, um, you know, which they thought was, was, was uh, you know, a good way of expressing it, but most people would read it something. <laughs> that, that's the sort of thing that happens. So you've got to think about the reader all the time. Um, but by and large, that's the that's the, the big thing. And, and um, uh, in in the more recent years, I've been very uh, uh, 
probably since since you did one of those courses, uh, is is the getting more and more fluency into your writing so that so that it, it follows all the time and people don't have to read twice because uh, if they read a sentence and don't quite understand it and got to go back and read it again to find out, they do that too often, but their mind just shuts down and most people will will um, recall um, times when they've said, oh, look, I'm terribly tired, I'm not concentrating well, I seem to, I've just read a paragraph and I can't remember what any of it at all and I've just read it. Uh, it's not your fault probably, it's, it's the fault of the writer. And so the writer's got to be conscious of those sort of things. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really matter on what what level, what level you're writing. We've we've interviewed a few. Well, we've had a few jobs open recently, and uh, I had a bit of a rant on our internal podcast about the quality of the writing. And and I think people really need to to think hard about what how they go about writing a, a resume, how they go about writing a cover letter, and and things of if you can't explain yourself in those and, and make write that with some fluency and with without spelling mistakes, it doesn't doesn't lend yourself to to be considered for that job really, depending on what the job is, of course. But yeah, I don't know. I guess over your years, you would have seen the the decline in English. Well, I don't know whether there is a decline, but but certainly what I have seen seen is a decline in the in the status of scientists in the in the world. I mean, if you Look at the news, and I'm sure it's exactly the same in New Zealand as it is in Australia. You look at the news every night. There's, there's somebody on there who's an economist from somewhere or other giving an opinion. Uh, and scientists don't give opinions. They got to give. They got to give. Uh, they got or, or, or if they're giving an opinion, they've got to actually put the data behind it. Uh, they got to base it on evidence. And and scientists find that extremely hard to do, so they back off. So in fact. Um, scientists who were believed, uh, you know, 40 or 50 years ago because they were scientists are now no longer believed because enough people give opinions that tell them to say that scientists are a bunch of idiots, uh, but who can talk um, uh, with opinions only have taken over. And I think that uh, there should be in all science courses now a unit or two of communication in order that, that, that scientists um, can actually defend themselves much better than they've tried to do in, in, um, in, in recent times. So, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, there's a whole lot of the thing all around the world to get STEM going, science, what is STEM, science, technology, um, uh, engineering and mathematics, so these, these subjects in mathematics, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think you ought to have communication in there as well because no sense in them being great great scientists if they can't tell anybody uh, why their science matters. And uh, I think that's an obligation that scientists have now. So communicating is, is, is far more important than we thought it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, for sure. And we, uh, on that note, we might, we might leave it there, but it's, yeah, the contribution you've made to make writing or reading a lot easier by making people write better has, has been enormous. And, and we're all very grateful for that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. hopefully the, the second retirement goes well. Now that you, you can do a bit less of that and enjoy the, the heat of a, of a WA summer. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, mate. Okay. Thanks very much, mate. 
Thanks again to our mates at Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply, professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd Podcast.